Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Great, so that's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we, then, nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to please remain standing and I'll pray for us. Our Father, we would indeed uh, pray what we have just been singing, that you would cause our faith now to rise, indeed cause our eyes to see the, the majestic love that comes in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray you would speak, speak profoundly into the very depths of our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Please do sit down. Well, as Ben has said, it is uh, very good to have you here. It's very good to see you. If you've not been before, you won't know, we've been looking through the book of Romans. We've come to uh, the end of chapter three uh, this evening, and uh, I'd encourage you to turn it up to the reading that Chris read for us just now. Page 1131 is the page number if you grab hold of a Bible, you'll then know why I'm going to say what I'm going to say and indeed be able to check that it is what the Bible says. The other thing that you, I think, will find particularly helpful tonight will be to dig out the, um, the sermon outline, uh, the handout. Uh, that will show you where we're going as well. I uh, heard someone on the radio news just this morning describing the bushfires that are sweeping through New South Wales in Australia at the moment. It sounded terrifying as they gave this amazingly... A vivid picture and with winds picking up it seems there is nothing anyone can do to stop the flames from advancing and destroying everything in its path now I can't imagine how terrible it would be to be facing that kind of impossible situation whether it be the bushfires of Australia or the hurricanes that so often hit the southern states of America or the tsunamis that have been so devastating in these last years that overwhelming power What must it be like to know a force so overwhelming is coming your way that you can do absolutely nothing to stop it or escape it? But that 
is exactly what Paul has been putting before us as we've studied the first three chapters of Romans. In our wickedness, we have been told in chapter one, we have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have all turned from the living God to go our own way. And I'm not going to rehearse the whole of chapters one, two, and three again, but his conclusion then is that we all deserve the full force of God's wrath to hit us. None of us can escape it. We saw that in chapters two and the first part of chapter three. And no amount of special pleading will get us out of this impossible situation. Left to ourselves, we are facing utter darkness for eternity. Now that is terrifying and, and frankly very sobering. Uh, The big words that have come again and again in these first three chapters are the words that I put on this uh, handout. Two words, unrighteous, we are not right with God, and wrath. Because we are unrighteous, we face God's just, settled, controlled hostility to evil. That has been the conclusion of the first three chapters of Romans. And it has been a relentless message. Paul has not stopped telling us this. Why? Because largely we don't believe it. And so he has, as he's gone through, closed every loophole and every escape route so that we might feel what what really is the case, that we are in an impossible situation. So if it has felt over the last few weeks, you thought, not that message again, that's what the Bible does to make us get it. And if we have understood it and really grasped it as we should have done by now we will feel the huge relief of Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 31 even the first two words bring relief verse 21 but now and those two words introduce a section of enormous hope indeed Leon Morris uh, says as uh, I've had printed on this on the outline here Uh, Leon Morris, the Bible commentator, writes that this paragraph may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. What an amazing statement. The most important words ever written in the history of language. That's quite a statement. It's quite scary to be the one who's supposed to now explain it to others. But when we've just been confronted with mankind's greatest problem, the wrath of God... The wrath of God coming upon us in all its force that we can't escape. Because we've seen that there is no solution to that that problem, no get out clause, no escape. Then as we read these words and learn of the answer to our impossible situation, we might just find ourselves agreeing with Leon Morris. These just might be the most important words ever written. Remember, our problem is all bound up with the fact that we are not Righteous, not right with God. And so what do we read in verse one? But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. There is a righteousness available from God. We're not righteous. No amount of stuff we do can make ourselves righteous. We're unrighteous. But God can give us a righteousness. God has opened up a way for unrighteous people, you and me, to be put right with him. But you see, verse 21, Paul quickly says, it's not by the law, that is the Old Testament law. Well, that's what he's been saying over and over again in chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3. <clears throat> oh, you'll see there in uh, verse 21, the law and the prophets foreshadow it. They, they, they point towards it. So uh, all of this stuff in the Old Testament pointed towards this great good news that we can get right with God, but it was never through keeping the law. 
As I say, Paul's been saying that right through these chapters. Indeed, it was the final conclusion of his conclusion. Look back to verse 20. He said, therefore, therefore, here's the, the, the final therefore of his conclusion. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Look, look, if I go to the doctor with a terrible and life-threatening fever, it would be odd if the doctor gave me a thermometer and told me to go home and take my temperature every day. That wouldn't do me any good. The thermometer tells me I've got a fever. It doesn't deal with the fever. That's verse 20. That's what God's law is like. God's law doesn't deal with the fever. It just tells me that I have one. It tells me that I'm not right with God, so the law won't save me. But while the law doesn't save me, end of verse 21, the law and the prophets tell me how I can be saved. Because the law and the prophets tell me all about Jesus. That's what we read in verse 22. This righteousness that is from God, this righteousness from God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, Very important to note here. I'm only going to do this as one line, but please don't brush over it. This righteousness that is from God doesn't come to us separate from Jesus. You see, that's what it says in verse 22. There's no way of being righteous with God apart from Jesus. Righteousness, being right with God, our greatest need comes to all who have faith in, or better, all who trust in the faithful work of Jesus Christ. And verse 23, in case we haven't heard it already, We all need it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need this righteousness that God gives. And verses 24 to 26 tell us how we can have it. And there are three words that I think really crack open this little section for verses 24 to 26. There are three words we need to understand. And I've again put them on the handout. We're at the bottom of the first page. That's encouraging, isn't it? We're getting through it. We're nearly there. Verse 24, three words, justification, the word justified in the, in the text. Verse 24, the word redemption or the word redeemed that's in verse 24. And verse 25, the word propitiation, or as you can see there as I put on the handout, a sacrifice of atonement as it says uh, in, in verse 25. Now, these are not words that roll off our tongues. They're not words we use every day. But, but these are words that Paul's first readers would have been very familiar with. And that's very important for us. Don't be, don't be thrown by those words. Paul isn't actually using highfalutin theological language here. No, he's wanting to communicate the momentous news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the average person in the street. These, for him, are down-to-earth terms used in everyday Rome. They are terms that come from the law court, from the slave market, and from the temple. And so if you turn the page over on their handout, you'll see the word justification comes from the law court, the word redemption from the slave market, and the word propitiation from the temple. And so to help us understand how Jesus is the only way we can be saved from God's wrath, Paul takes us on a day trip. And we'll go on it today. The first place we arrive is at the law court in the word justification, verse 24. Do you see it there? Uh, I'll read from verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justified freely. 
Now, the word justified and the word righteous are talking about the same thing. If you like this sort of thing, justification is the noun. To declare righteous is the verb. I'm rubbish with English. Somebody told me that. I didn't work it out myself. Anyway, the point is this. We arrive at the court. But as we do, we discover that this is no ordinary day trip. For suddenly, we're in the dock. The evidence has been heard. All that remains is for the sentence to be passed. And the verdict is in no doubt. Well, we know what the verdict is because we've been here over the last few weeks. We've been hearing the... Uh, we've been hearing the accusation we are guilty for crimes against divinity we're in the dock in the law court but then as the judge pronounces sentence to our amazement he says not guilty and so there is no punishment and we have been declared righteous we are justified the judge has just declared that I the guilty sinner am in the right with God Ah, but it's not because I deserve it or even earn it or merit it. It is, you see, verse 24, it is by grace. It is contrary to deserving. You see, chapters one and two are right. I am the idolater of chapter one. I am the sinner of chapter one. In chapter two, I'm the self-righteous person who passes judgment on other people thinking I'm great when I'm not. In short, I am guilty. You are guilty. And so to hear not guilty is a remarkable thing. And so on this day trip, as you leave the court grinning from ear to ear, you find a reporter thrusts a microphone under your nose and says, all the evidence is stacked against you. You were caught red-handed. How can you be justified? How can you be declared not guilty? And frankly, we feel a bit embarrassed by the question. It is a problem, isn't it? How can God, the righteous judge, set crooked people like you and me right with him and not be a crooked judge himself? Well, to deal with that, Paul whisks us off to the slave market and the word redemption there, also in verse 24. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, to redeem something is to buy it back, to pay a price to buy it back. Uh, We do it every day, really, but we just don't use that language very often. And that's why Paul has taken us to the slave market, so that we can understand what's going on here. Now, again, this is a day trip not like any other. Horror of horrors, as we arrive at the slave market, we discover we're in chains. We're one of the slaves. And again, we can't quibble. We know why we're in this mess. Once we had a wonderful master. He treated us better than we ever deserved. He treated us perfectly. But we abused his trust and the way we behaved towards his son was unspeakably appalling. We ran away from our master and became enslaved to another way of life, a life of serving other masters. So we know exactly why we're in these chains. And now a crowd of gruesome slave traders are haggling over our price. Any one of them would be a master from hell and so we fear the worst. When out of the corner of our eye we see our old master in the crowd... And he's deep in conversation. And as we look more closely, he's in conversation with his son, the son that we abused. And unbelievably, he plays a massive price for us. He pays the ransom price to set us free. And the price he paid is his son. His son is exchanged for us. And we're handed back to our master. We're free. He has redeemed us. 
And so as on this day trip we've moved from the law courts to the slave market, we see that God didn't just let us off in the law court. He paid a huge price for us. Paying the ultimate Christ in, uh, price in Christ dying the most cruel death. Well, that's what we read twice in, in verse 25 and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his justice. God didn't just let us off. The just judge can't do that. He can't just let you off. Now, in Christ's death, God pays the perfect price to buy us back from the law's dominion. What God's law demands, God loves God's love provides. So we're justified, declared not guilty. We're redeemed, set free from our bondage to slavery. And as the chains are taken off our wrists and our ankles and we're handed over to our master, we're delighted. But then this nagging thought goes through our mind and suddenly our delight turns to fear. Well, he's a wonderful master, but we know we deserve his anger. We have rebelled against him and abused his son. We deserve only his wrath. And so this chilling thought passes through our minds as he brought us simply to punish us. And so we're led to the master with that thought going through our mind. And as we stand face to face with him, we're so relieved as he greets us lovingly and takes our chains off and says, you're free. You're redeemed. The price is paid. More than that, you're part of the family now. But how can that be? Why is the master not angry with us? Well, to answer that question, Paul takes us to the temple in verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, the word we need to understand here then is this word propitiation. It's explained in the footnote in the NIV. Propitiation is turning aside God's wrath. You see, that's the problem we face. From chapter 1, verse 18, we've been confronted with the present wrath of God being poured out upon the world. In chapter 2, verse 5, there was a far worse wrath of God, the future wrath of God. And so we have to ask, why is it that God is not angry with us anymore? After all, we have sinned and we continue to sin. And so we arrive at the temple, the last part of our tour this evening. And as we walk into the temple, there's blood, verse 25. Do you see it there? There's blood everywhere. It's like a scene from the Chamber of Horrors. Someone has died the most horrific death, a young man in the prime of life. You turn to the Apostle Paul and ask him what's happened and he tells you it's because of the righteous anger of Almighty God. God was angry, someone had to die and you ask, well, who was God so angry with? And the Apostle looks at you and replies, well, you of course. But there are you standing alive and free and someone else has died an horrific death in your place. The wrath of God has been poured on another, on the Lord Jesus As Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed God's wrath into himself so that you and I don't have to face it. Propitiation is what the the cross of Christ meant to God. It dealt with God's wrath. 
And in doing so, the cross rescues God's reputation, if I can put it that way. See, verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see the point of those verses? At the cross, God shows his abhorrence for sin. He should be angry at sin and evil. And so at the cross, the judge passes the guilty verdict. He does deal with sin. If he were just to let us off, that would be an outrage. Sin is a crime. It must be paid for. So it is paid for. But not by us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us, God pays the price for our sin. So again, if I may put it this way, God's reputation, his character is rescued at the cross. Where wrath and mercy meet. At the cross where we see that God is both a just judge and our loving heavenly father. And at the cross is the only way out of our impossible situation. And that should humble us. And so Paul writes, verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the Lord? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. This wonderful status of being right with God comes to us not through our own efforts, not through keeping the law or any law or any effort, but, verse 28, by faith. So no place for boasting. I didn't do anything. Just trusting Jesus. Do you see, religion and law-keeping makes a person smug and self-righteous and proud. Look what I've done. Look how religious I am. Look how good I am. But in the gospel, there's no place for boasting. For verse 28, we're justified by faith, by trusting Jesus alone. Done absolutely nothing to contribute to our salvation. Nothing. All who are saved are saved by faith, verse 29. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yeah, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do you see? Doesn't matter who you are. If you're going to be justified, justified by faith. So no place for proud arrogance. Isn't that one? That's one of the great things about the gospel. It puts us all on an even, even footing. No one's more important than anybody else. No one deserves their salvation more than anybody else. None of us deserve it at all. It's been given to us. No place for pride then, is there? And because this is the only way out of this dreadful predicament, and because it's the same for everyone, we must go and tell everyone, which, as we've seen, is the point of the book of Romans. And not least of all, we must go and tell those who think they're okay. The people of chapters two and three who think their moral lives and their religious lives will save them. 
The people that if you were to ask them the question, if you were to stand before God tonight and you were to say why, and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? They would answer, well, because I've done, and then they'll repeat all the things they've done. We've got to go and tell those people because that won't get them into heaven. So on the back of all this, chapters one, two, and now three, go to your dear Roman Catholic friends who are perhaps more committed to their church and possibly, probably more committed to the sacraments than you are and tell them that it's got nothing to do with performance and everything to do with what Jesus has done. I heard this week someone speaking of their grandmother like this, a Roman Catholic family. She's very religious. She's a woman of great faith. She's been to church all her life. But she is racked with guilt. And she has no assurance of going to heaven. And she's 93 and not getting any younger. People like that need to hear the glorious gospel. They don't need religion. They need the gospel. Go and tell them. And go and talk to the Orthodox Jew and say to them, you love Yahweh. You are committed to the law. So committed it affects how you live, even what you eat. But it's not by keeping every detail of the law that you are saved. No, the law just makes you aware of your failings. The law takes your spiritual temperature and shows you that you are ill. The law cannot save you. But the good news of the gospel is that God has satisfied his own demands. So feel the weight of the reliefs. Go and tell your Orthodox Jew friend that. And then go and talk to your Church of England grandma or your Baptist auntie. They're trying their best to please God, but they're not sure they've done enough. Go and tell them that the enormous load has been lifted because God has cancelled out the need for religion, religion that makes demands of you. No, Christianity is about provision, about God providing what is needed for us and not about you reaching a required standard. And then go to the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Hindu and the Jehovah Witness, all who are feverishly trying to add to their account with God and tell them that's not the way God does the accounts. The only deposit that matters is the one that he places on our account as a gift. The righteousness of Christ. And as I close, while this encourages you to go and tell everyone we know, May I say, Christian, preach this to yourself. Preach it to yourself, Christian, even though you've heard this many times before. Christian, preach it to yourself when you feel the weight of your sin. When you feel you can't possibly be one of God's children. Feel the relief through the gospel As you hear God saying to you, although you will stand before me in judgment with a record of wrongs as long as your arm, although you are in an impossible situation, although there are things that should keep you out of my presence, hear him say to you, but I see you now as I see my son, the Lord Jesus. You are righteous. You are justified. You are redeemed. The wrath of God has been absorbed by another, by my son, on your behalf. Is there any sweeter sound than that? Any sweeter sound that any man or woman or boy and girl could ever hear? 
Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, from the very bottom of our hearts for this most wonderful and glorious message of the gospel. We thank you for this paragraph, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. We thank you that in it all the striving and effort are gone. All the fear of standing before you one day, gone. All the agony of the thought of death and eternity without you, gone. All the pride of religion and self-achievement, gone. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this most amazing gospel that makes us all on a level and makes us all, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, absolutely guaranteed of being right with you, not only now, but for the whole of eternity. And we thank you in his name. Amen.